0: Well, good morning. Indeed, we are glad that you are with us today. And the memorial service yesterday for Joan Beelen, for my mother in law, was fabulous. Uh, and thank you to all of you who helped make that happen. Um, and to so many who have texted us and prayed for us, um, who have brought us meals and, and cared for us in so many ways. Thank you. You have been the church um, incredibly well ministering to us. So thank you for that. Um, We are in a series um, called Ordering Your Life, and in this series, I want to kind of set where we are, or or where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, okay? And so, um, in Ordering Your Life, we have so far, in a big picture, preached about marriage and parenting. Um, uh, Brian preached about spiritual gifts and discovering that, and how how do I, how has God made me and used me and the Spirit equipped me to do things? Um, and about Sabbath and the need for rest, because in our lives we are run frantically, and so we need order there for rest. Um, We're zooming in a little bit last week, today, and then next week, talking about the role of women in ministry in the church, and we're doing that because lots of people have asked me questions about that recently, and then after that, we're going to zoom back out um, in terms of a broader view of, of life in Scripture, and move into wisdom for ordering your life from the book of Proverbs. Um, so in a moment, we're going to read um, 1 Corinthians 14. There, it's, a, it's one of the controversial passages in the Bible, as was last week's 1 Corinthians 11, uh, and so I'm, I'm tackling hard things um, because we, don't, we try not to just pick and choose things we like or want to do, but... But address each of them, and because it's a hard one, and because this topic is especially important, we're going to have a Q and A today after the service. So we don't have any Sunday school. Excuse me, <coughs> we don't have any Sunday school anymore. Right? We just have fellowship time with coffee for the summer. Okay. But today, get your coffee, come back in here if you want, and we'll have q and A Q&A in here. You guys can ask all kinds of questions, and we'll have a good discussion um, about this. So, um, chapter eleven introduced the subject of congregational worship in 1 Corinthians, as Paul did. In chapter 12, he talked about using your spiritual gifts then in the church. In chapter 13, he said you got to do that with love, because if there's no love, you're like a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. And in chapter 14, he comes to talk about using these gifts in good order so that It builds up and encourages those gathered. Now, that's important because that is mentioned specifically this building up in verse 3, 4, 5, 12, and 17, and again in what we're about to read. So follow along, if you would, with me as we read 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 40. This is the word of God. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, Or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said, And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says." If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your holy word, which is without error and authoritative in our lives. And I pray that you will give me the ability to communicate well today. Give each of us ears to hear and hearts to receive. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you read this passage through the lens of our modern culture, you will quickly assert that Paul is a misogynistic bigot. It seems entirely opposite to the way the world works now um, and the way things should be. I don't think Paul is a misogynistic bigot. I think he's actually a promoter of women. And as we get into this, I just want to remind you kind of a big picture of a couple of things. The role of women being ordained as pastors into ministry is relatively new in the scope of history. That is to say, while there may have been individual churches that have done it for over a hundred years, denominations haven't really authorized that until like the 1950s. And in the scope of history of 2,000 years, historians will tell you that's a relatively short amount of time, like like a blip on a radar screen. Um, so it's new. It's, it's on the progressive side of things. And that doesn't mean just because it's new and progressive that it is good and right. Nor does it mean that it's automatically bad and wrong just because something's new and progressive. My point simply is it's new in the scope of history in the church. The second, being a follower of Jesus and his teaching sometimes puts us at odds In opposition to the popular opinion of the culture. Right? We have to remember that. Um, I want to show you John 15. Will you put that verse on the screen for me? John 15, verses 18 to 19. Jesus is talking to his followers and he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Look, Don't expect life to be easy. There will be things in following me that the world will say, that's crazy, but you have to be prepared for that. Kathy Keller, the wife of Tim Keller, who was pastor of Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church in New York City in Manhattan, she is an incredibly gifted um, speaker and writer and communicator. She can minister to people in all kinds of ways. She's written books, one of which is called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. In it, she writes this, God made his claim on my life during high school, but I was slow in coming to trust the Bible as anything more than a collection of Aesop fable-like stories and poetic sentiments useful on ceremonial occasions. My perspective on Scripture did not detract from my intention to enter the ordained ministry in the United Presbyterian Church. I knew God was real. I had encountered him in every way possible except through Scripture. I had no notion that I was missing something until college. Jesus trusted the interpretation of the Old Testament and promised the inspiration of the New Testament. He quoted Scripture at every point of his life. If I trusted Jesus, she writes, to be who he said he was, why wouldn't I also trust his view of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture? You see, what she was saying is she came to this point of saying, wait, if I'm really going to hear from God and if I'm really going to follow God, I've got to trust God's Word as authoritative and inerrant, directive for my life. And And I put that to you because one of the things whenever we come to difficult places in the Bible, we have to ask is, what do we think about Scripture itself? And we say that we believe in Scripture and we follow it, that it's authoritative for our life. I mean, if we say that we don't believe that, and we just want to pick and choose parts of it that we like, then what we are doing is put ourselves as masters over Scripture rather than students under Scripture. And when we start doing that, and we start disassembling it to say this is what we like, this is what we don't like, we really just said we're going to decide and be our own people and be our own gods. And so I'm not comfortable doing that. That's not. I went into this profession, this ministry, because I felt God called me to do it to explain to you what Scripture says because I believe it to be true. Doesn't mean it's always easy to understand. It doesn't mean we always like what it says. But we have that view about the authority of Scripture. And so Kathy Keller, in writing what she wrote, was doing two things. She was both affirming the gifts of women to be used in the church and acknowledging the authority found in the Scripture. And so today, we're going to look at those two things, how we order our lives in worship so that it builds those up gathered. And the first part of that is, worship builds up by affirming others' gifts. We saw this in verse 26 right away. Let's put that verse back on the screen, please. Verse 26 talks about this when Paul says, What shall we say then, brothers and sisters? He's talking to the whole church gathered. When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Each of you, right? He's expecting that worship is participatory, that the people are involved in it, men and women, sharing. Um, And in verse 31, if you'd put that one on the screen, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. You see what he's saying? He's saying that affirming the gifts of men and women that all can prophesy... All can learn and all can be encouraged. He's saying some pretty bold things there because in the culture of the day, some people looked at women as inferior and they shouldn't even be educated or learn. Right? And that's changed in the world. and That's a good thing. And Paul's actually saying it should change. They should learn. They should be a part of what's going on. And they should all be encouraged. So the spiritual gifts of men and and women are for the benefit of others. And this part about being for the benefit of others can wage war against our own soul, can wage war against our own desires to accommodate our personal preferences, right? Like when we show up for church and we're like, oh, I like this kind of music, or I like that kind of music, or I like it when you preach in this way, or when you preach in that way, or I like it when the lights are like this, or not like this, right? We have all the lights that we want. But if it's to build others up and encourage others, that wages war against our own personal preferences and says to us, part of worship gathered is so that everybody is encouraged in it. Participatory worship we have to, means we have to ask questions like, how do I need to learn from others through the expression of their gifts? If you like to lead and speak up, You might need to be silent to allow others to participate. And you're like, you're the one standing there speaking. Don't I know it? Like, man, I've had to wrestle with this. Like, I'm the preacher. And the temptation is to think that I'm the one that needs to talk all during the service. I'm the leader. But that's not what Paul's saying. I mean, yes, I have a role, but it's participatory, that everybody should be part of what's going on. Use everybody's gifts that are important. So a few years ago, the session, the elders of the church encouraged men and women to lead the beginning parts of our service, the call to worship, the confession of sin, the assurance of forgiveness. We want men and women to do what Paul says, to pray and prophesy, words of encouragement, instructions, challenging us in our faith, encouraging us, moving us to action, right? And so that part of that was, okay, I'm the preacher, But I don't do everything. We use the gifts of our people to lead in various ways. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. I I want you to see, and what I'm I'm trying to assert, is that Paul is actually affirming women. He's affirming that women should be there, be present, offer hymns, songs, offer lessons, instructions, offer revelation and prophecy. That is what's coming to mind and what God is doing and encouraging people. And he also says to be under authority. It's helpful probably if we understand a little bit about how synagogues, Jewish worship, happened and worked in the New Testament era, in that time period. Synagogues um, would meet and read from a scroll. They would take a scroll, probably a portion of one of the prophets or the law of the Old Testament, and they would open it and they would read it. Um, People would share words of instruction and encouragement, and then at the end of that time, that prophecy, those, those those sharings, were weighed by the elders of the synagogue. On occasion, they might have a visiting rabbi or a family from out of town. Often they didn't have paid clergy, so to speak. And so they would have traveling teachers and rabbis. This is what Jesus did with his disciples traveling around. You may remember in Luke 4, Jesus goes into a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, opens the scroll and says amen, this is what I'm saying to you, reads it, and they're like, how does he think he has authority to do this? Because, right, the, the way it worked was the elders of the synagogue judged if Jesus' words were true, but Jesus declared his own words true. And they were shocked by that. So, uh, Kathy Keller, again, writes about this synagogue worship. She says, The early church adopted this same practice as the Jewish synagogue, and for the same reasons. Without a resident trained clergy and an authoritative compilation of the deposit of truth left by Jesus, traveling apostles, traveling messengers of apostles, and apostle wannabes could show up at any worship event and speak. They would be given the opportunity to do so. And as they speak... um, Depending on the forcefulness of the speaker, they might win a hearing for their interpretation of Jesus' teaching. False doctrine was the biggest enemy of the infant church, and the counter to it was to have a group of local elders chosen for their maturity in the faith, whose job it was to judge the truth from heresy, whether from the mouths of their own local congregation or from a traveling speaker. That's the background of synagogue worship. That's important for us to understand because Paul has that in mind as he's writing these words. And so worship that builds up affirms the use of others' gifts, but it also acknowledges authority. Notice then what Paul is not doing. He is not forbidding women from any speaking. And you're saying, yes, he is. It said it. Right? I mean, we we just read it in verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak. And I'm saying, no, that's not what he's saying. And you're saying, well, who are you to say that? One of the things we have to do with Scripture, if we, believe, if we don't just want to pick and choose, if we're going to say we trust and we believe that it's God's word to lead and guide us, is we have to interpret Scripture well. And that means interpreting it from its historical and grammatical context. But it also means interpreting in such a way so that Scripture interprets Scripture That is, the less clear parts of Scripture that seem weird and hard to understand are understood in light of the parts that are really plain and clear. Those are principles of interpretation. And if, if Scripture contradicts Scripture, and then we're like, well, then I don't know what to do with it, then maybe we've misunderstood it. Because we're saying, and what Scripture says, is that it is unified in what it tells us about the Lord, about Christ, about faith, about following God. And so, how is it that I'm telling you then that Paul is not saying what you think he's saying in verse 34? Women should remain silent in churches and they're not allowed to speak. Well, let me explain that if I may. In chapter 11, verse 5, the same person who wrote those words writes that women should pray and prophesy. I'm pretty sure that prophesying includes speech because it does everywhere else it's talked about in the Bible. So how can he say that they gather in public worship and women can pray and women can prophesy and even what we just read in verse 26 that when you come together each of you has a hymn a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation all those include speaking how can he say they can speak there but then he can in verse 34 say nope they can't speak Paul come on make up your mind And so what I want to propose to you is that what Paul is doing is putting a limit on a certain kind of speaking that's consistent with the context. The words that are used in there a few different times where it says to be silent or to keep quiet means most often in Scripture to keep quiet after speaking or after speaking then to be silent. That's why he says and gives the rules if somebody's speaking in a tongue Two or three at most should speak and one at a time so that the others can be heard and then interpreted, right? The speaker then should keep quiet, he says, in verse 28, and then wait for an interpretation. Or if somebody's prophesying and they have a word of instruction, encouragement from the Lord, and they're prophesying this to the congregation and another person has some, a word they want to speak and they're ready to stand up, the first, he says, then should be quiet, should be silent. Right? And that's applying to everybody. And so that's how that word silent is used. So when Paul comes to verse 34 and says they should then remain silent, I think he's talking about in a specific context of when they are to remain silent. And I think that context is given to us um, by verse 29. Let's put verse 29 on there. Thank you. It says two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. What Paul has done is talked about these gifts, talked about prophecy and revelation, and then he comes to this point in synagogue worship where, in in the New Testament church, where the elders then are weighing what is said. It's not the other prophets that's weighing what was said, because if it was, it would say two or three prophets should speak, and the other prophets should weigh carefully what is said. But that's not what it says. It just says the others, meaning somebody different from the prophets. And Paul has in mind exactly what happens. It would be the elders that do that. And so the elders would weigh what is being said. And what Paul is saying then is, during that time when the elders are weighing and judging the prophecy, as is it true or not, according to the apostles' teaching and what Jesus said, is when the women should be silent and not speak. It's the elders rolled away that and judge that at that point in time. And that's what I think he's saying. At that point, the women don't speak. You may or may not like that, but I think it does explain and make the text consistent and coherent so that Paul makes sense in what he's saying. He says then that they should ask later, ask outside of that time of waiting, ask later. After that, when you're at home, ask then and say, hey, what about this? Why wouldn't they have said this? Paul is uh, making a point here, right, about authority. And one of the things we need to see is that, yes, he does limit, speaking here of women in this certain situation, but he also is saying that we all have to submit to authority. Everybody does, right? Each prophecy, no matter who shares it, is to be weighed, submitting to authority, And it's to be weighed according to what? The apostles' teaching, to Scripture. So everybody is submitting to authority, even the elders submitting to the authority of Scripture. And in verse 36 and verse 37, Paul makes this clear, if we put those words on the screen. He says to them, or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet, or otherwise gifted by the by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. What Paul is saying is, to the Corinthian church, this is the practice that happens in all the churches. And if you're saying it's different, then you're a prophet speaking saying it's different, but as a prophet speaking saying it's different, it needs to be weighed. And he's saying, it's not, that's not how the churches practice it. And he's saying, you don't just get to invent your own way of the Corinthian church, you don't get to invent your own way Of having the apostles' teaching applied. He's saying you need to submit to the apostles' teaching. So I hope that you recognize that what Paul is trying to do and what I am suggesting is we follow the Word of God. That is a hard thing to do. Whether you are more traditional or more progressive, Theologically, you can still have the same root problem. And that root problem is you want autonomy. But God says, you need to submit to my authority. Right? As freedom-loving Americans, we want to be independent, free, and autonomous. Don't tell me what to do. That's how I want to live. And God says, you are under my authority whether you like it or not. Like, ah and that cuts against us right because we want to sit in authority over the scripture we want to approve of what we want it to approve of what we already believe keep us comfortable don't challenge us don't tell us something that's different than what we think is good just let me keep go about gossiping or lying or having sexual freedom or to have whatever view of men and women that i want to have or or to say it's old fashioned like you, no scripture no bible don't challenge me let me shape it so that it fits what I like. That's a dangerous thing to do. And that can happen whether you're progressive or whether you're traditional. Because you might say, well, I'm traditional. I just want to protect these roles. But maybe you're protecting certain roles that aren't what the Scripture says. Right? You can fall off both sides of a horse. What we're supposed to do with Scripture is not be more conservative than Scripture, not be more progressive than Scripture, but stand right on Scripture where it is and live according to that. I am under authority. I'm under the authority of regional pastors in the James River Presbytery. My calling to God, by God, is to teach you His Word so that you follow Jesus. And if I'm silent where God speaks on something clearly then I am not leading I'm not shepherding and I'm not guarding you well so when I don't like a text because it's uncomfortable and I have to stand up here as a man and talk to people whom I might offend half of you as women it makes me really uncomfortable because I love you like I don't want to say hard things I like, let's just be happy let's just talk nice things You wanna be independent and free? You wanna in society, you wanna be seen as somebody who's doesn't just go along with the flow, somebody who's a rebel who does their own thing. That's what so much of what culture is, right? I want to do my own thing. You wanna be a rebel today? Follow Jesus, because there aren't many people doing it. That's how you can be a rebel. I want to read to you part of a report from uh, our church denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, They produced a lengthy report. Um, It's in here. It's one of these fat documents. It's like, I don't know, 60-some pages front and back, I think. Um, And um, it's about the role of women in ministry um, and in ministry in terms of in the church and using their gifts and how they should be used and encouraged and affirmed. And related to the question of why should women be encouraged in Scripture to prophesy but not encouraged to judge prophecy, not to weigh that prophecy? What would be a response to that? So listen to these words. The report says, Apostles and elders, not prophets, are the primary authorities in the New Testament. Right? If you think of the Old Testament, you think, oh, there's a whole section of prophets, and they speak, and speak God's word to the people. But in the New Testament, it's apostles and elders, not prophets, that are the primary authorities. For example, in Acts 15, the apostles and the elders gather in Jerusalem to determine the proper response to a theological crisis. What is right? What's the teaching of Jesus? What, what, is, what do the apostles say? Then they deputize prophets to carry out that message and go to the churches and tell them this is what the decision is. Moreover, Paul uh, assumed that elders, not prophets, would, su- would succeed apostles when they die. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, he's training those who are going to go after him and to establish leaders, elders in the church. Therefore, prophets do not bear primary authority in the church. Everyone should be discerning. It says, but elders are especially responsible to guide the church to two dr- true doctrine, Acts 15 and Acts 20. Among elders, some especially, labor in preaching and teaching, First Timothy 5.17, where Paul writes to Timothy on that. Whether they label them pastors, teachers, preachers, ministers, or even priests, churches know that God calls some men to proclaim and guard the truth. Paul wanted every church to have men who labor in the word, teach and discern, he appointed such men elders in every church acts 14:23 and told church planters to do the same titus 1:5 it is fitting then for women to prophesy but neither to preach nor to test prophecy so that's what the report of the denomination is saying especially related to this passage here I want to remind you of something that, that, we, that I said last week, and that is this, that equality does not blur all distinction. Father and Son, Spirit, the Trinity, God, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? The Father and the Son are same in substance, equal in power and glory, yet they are distinct in functional subordination. It was Jesus who in the garden prayed, yet not my will, but your will be done, Father, and submitted his back to the whip and to the cross. It was not the Father who did that. This completely reframes the way we think then of authority and roles. Authority is not extra privilege, it's extra responsibility. Scripture instructs that male elders are responsible for the preaching ministry and the judging uh, and weighing of prophecy, of life, right? They would exercise discipline. So only elders, primarily at this church, it would be me and Brian, Our pastors, teaching elders we're called, um, preach. And an occasional guest pastor or traveling missionary might preach. Or a pastoral intern such as Heath or Jake, they preach. Because they're in seminary doing a required internship to become an ordained pastor. Part of which requires some preaching. So Jake does that under the authority of the elders. Being trained by me, we talk about it. Um, We've read books on it help to instruct him in it, and then he gets to be evaluated by me or the elders. I, my preaching, is evaluated by the elders. If I say something, they're like, hey, why are you saying that? Then they challenge me on it. But everyone is encouraged to use their gifts. Men and women, adults and children, unordained men and women lead us in worship, which is the context of 1 Corinthians 14. We have different worship leaders. Some are men, some are women. They choose songs. They choose words for our confession to lead you to confess your sins to the Lord. They choose words in Scripture um, to read as the assurance of forgiveness. They do announcements. They lead children. They pray here. They can be ushers, collect the offering, share gospel stories about what God is doing, instruct us, encourage us, challenge us to walk in the faith. Outside of gathered public worship on Sunday mornings like this, outside of that, women are encouraged to teach adult Sunday school classes, to lead community groups, lead divorce care, to serve on and even chair committees of the church. We have women that serve on our worship committee, missions committee, finance committee, personnel committee, and church plan initiatives team. Women are paid staff in the church. Women are appointed as assistants to the deacons in the church. And that's role of service. The committee report that I read to you from our denomination, that committee included three women on it. And then that report was written, here's the recommendation, and given to the elders to weigh as good or not, and the elders weighed it and approved the report as it's a good report. This is what our churches should do in practice. Wellspring, though it is a separate business organization from our church, most of the counselors in it uh, go to our church, is, a, is run by women. The director is a woman. And what they do in counseling, what many people do in counseling, is ministry. Like offering help to people, instructing, encouraging, praying with them, challenging them in Scripture. Seeing that as comforting to them. Women can start businesses, manage people, run for political office. Right? Scripture is not saying anything about that. It's talking about what Paul's talking about is the church gathered for worship. What happens then? I need to wrap up, but I want to invite you to stay for the Q&A and ask questions. I'll be happy to talk with you more about it and try to answer what I can and be honest about things I don't know. But before we do that, I want to also tell you about Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot is the widow of martyred missionary Jim Elliot, who was speared to death on the beach in a South American jungle, taking the gospel to people there. She survived. She stayed um, she wasn't on the beach. And so she stayed and ministered to those people. And virtually the whole village became Christian because of her witness and the others that stayed behind with the people there. As she um, was in, later in life, she uh, taught at Gordon Conwell Seminary. She was a, a guest lecturer at Covenant Theological Seminary where I attended. And Kathy Keller, who I quoted at the beginning, right, was a student at Gordon-Comwell and took a class from Elizabeth Elliot. And she recalls this about the class that was helpful for her. She said that Mrs. Elliot helped distinguish between gifts and roles. Between gifts and roles. And she announced to her class of both men and women that she had better gifts for being a pastor than most of the men in the class, possibly the entire seminary. She knew the Bible in multiple languages, had vast experience expositing it, had the maturity brought through suffering to speak with compassion to others, and on and on. And she went on and said, however, God has not called me as a woman to exercise those gifts in a pastoral role. I am called to use them, but why should they only be valuable if used in one particular role in ordained ministry? So she used her life, using the gifts, not in ordained ministry, to teach and to instruct and encourage others to build them up in faith to follow Jesus. We want to encourage and build up in worship, both men and women, to use their gifts. And I hope you see that that's our heart as we follow Scripture and God's Word. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help what is a difficult text and words that may be at times confusing to become clear. Spirit, will you do work in our lives to help us want to understand your word better and to live according to it rather than being the ones who sit in judgment over your word. Lord, I pray that you will help people to remember what I spoke that is true and if I spoke anything that is untrue, may they forget it. The so Lord, as the call and task you've given me as a preacher of the gospel, you tell me in James that I will be judged for that. So I pray that I've been good and faithful with your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.